everyone, and thank you for tuning in for the Cyber Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. My name is Maria Wells, and I'm your host. Today with us, we have Eric Germundi. Eric is a seasoned keynote speaker and best-selling author. He has been on hundreds of stages all over the world speaking about workplace culture and one-degree shifts that build communities at work. Having built and sold two companies and surveyed and interviewed thousands of people, Eric brings a fresh perspective to workplace culture and the future of work. We will be discussing his understanding of the next generation of work and how to attract and retain the right talent. Also, his best-selling book, Rethink Work, his insights and tips about talent and teams, employee engagement, and so much more. And with that, please welcome Eric. So I guess to start off, as just you do on your podcast, do you mind mm-hmm. telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, thank, thanks so much for, for the opportunity to be on this on this show is something I'm, I'm honored to do. I'm a keynote speaker, uh, an author, and an entrepreneur in sort of the HR future of work space. Uh, I've been here for the better part of, of the last decade surveying people all over North America into Europe as well to figure out sort of what makes people tick at work. You know, how do we reduce friction and, and make that thing we do more than anything else in the day, which of course is, is work, an enjoyable experience. And so, you know, I've had the incredible honor of working with great companies, you know, from AAA and Amazon and Arcteryx all the way to Toyota, um, you know, Intuit, Bank of Montreal, and across the spectrum, really to help them make what I'm calling these one degree shifts. And a one degree shift is, is the smallest viable change, I would say, that we can make over and over again to create a more intentional future. You know, and we, we can dive into that more uh, as we get into the show, but this path has, has taken me sort of all over the world and connected with some pretty incredible people along the way. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I've had and, and excited to sort of treat every day almost like it's day one, to be as much of a sponge as I can as possible and to continue to learn and, and to sort of curate my, my thoughts and considerations as we look at the future of work and all the change that we've seen in the past six months. Ah, I love it. Okay. You're incredible. And the work that you do, your website is full of content, the blogs, the podcast, the book. Amazing. Don't even know what to start with. But the first thing would be, I guess, the one degree shift that you mentioned, the minimal viable mm-hmm. change. Is mm-hmm. it the same for every company? Is it different for everyone? What do you think the best place to work in America is right now? Google. Amazon. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very, very common guess, actually. The, <laughs> the number one place to work in America is, is Hilton, the hotel chain. Oh. The second best place to work, according to Fortune, is Ultimate Software, you know, a, a, a software company. And here's the thing. Somebody that works at Hilton might not want to work at Ultimate Software, and somebody that works at Ultimate Software might not want to work at Hilton, but they're both great places to work. And, and truthfully, for anyone who's on that list or on a Canadian list or on an Ontario list or on a Toronto list, hats off to you for the great work that you've done. But I think when we talk about this one degree shift, a one degree shift for Hilton might be wildly different than Ultimate Software because what they're looking to create is a different experience. And so the essence of the one degree shift is ultimately to reduce friction over and over and over again. Maybe it's in the sales process. Maybe it's in team communication. Maybe it's in how we're marketing the company. And if we can reduce friction over and over again, if we can empower as much of the team to be a part of that solution as possible, then I believe that each company is not just responsible for, but obligated to create a unique culture that works for them. 
Because again, I'll say that what might work for Hilton might not work for Ultimate Software, and that's okay. But if we know our people and we know our environment well enough by simply asking them as many questions as possible and putting that constant incremental change in place, I'm really excited about what the future can bring. That's awesome. Okay. So then when you look at the research for Hilton or Amazon or Google, does it matter where you are in the chain and does it matter what position you occupy in those companies or culture is this thing that's the same for everyone? I like to compare culture to politics in a sense. Now, no red flags. I'm not going to go political on this for a second, but you know, in Canada, we've got our federal, we've got our provincial and our municipal government. So let's just use you and I, for an example, we're both Canadians, right? Uh, So we adhere to the rules and regulations of our federal government. Now you're in Ontario and I'm in British Columbia. Our governments are much, much different. You know, you've got Premier Ford, we've got Premier Horgan, we've got an NDP versus a blue conservative. And as a result, we've got different rules and regulations and normalities and laws depending on where we live. Now, we can get even more specific. Vancouver is a lot different than, you know, Kelowna or the Southeast Kootenays where I grew up. Toronto is going to be different than Barrie, is going to be different than London, is going to be different than Hamilton, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when we understand that, yes, you know, being in Toronto, you're still a Torontonian or Ontario or Ontarian or a Canadian, uh, then I think we can apply the same sort of frame of thought to workplace culture too. So let's just say we're a, a member of RBC. So yes, you might be a member of RBC. You might be in the banking division and more specifically in the banking division, you might work at one of the branches and one of the branches, you might have a certain role. And as a result, the culture will be very much aligned with the mission, vision, values of RBC and however many dozens of thousands of employees there are. But the culture and the experience that you'll have as a result of being on that individual team of maybe three, four, five, 10, or 15 will be different. And it has to be. And so when we look at these one degree shifts and when we look at creating more intentional and more positive culture, I think it's really important that we sort of take a new look at where does workplace culture really live, especially in these post-COVID times, and how can we create a better experience for the people that we speak to most? Now, I'm going to take this one step further because pre-COVID, we were many of us were in the office, if that's the work that we were doing, and we were subject to and met with a lot of other people on a lot of different teams. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be on five or six Zoom calls a day, interacting with one, two, or three people per call. So if that's true, you might only be working with or interacting with or seeing 15 people a day. So culture and where culture lives is going to be vastly different than it was before because we're subject to and meeting far fewer people on a daily basis than we were before. So what that tells me is that culture really then lives in how we interact with the people that we're communicating with on a daily basis. If we want to create a tremendous experience, I think it starts with how we're communicating with our team and how that sort of trickles up to the top of the organization and the influence that we have along the way. I love this answer. And I guess since you touched upon COVID, how does it work right now in this day and age? And you're right, I'm spending my time mostly on Zoom calls or I get Zoom fatigued and then I just pick up a phone and just talk to the people on the phone. I don't meet as many people anymore as, you know, networking event where you just give up your cards to everyone and then go lunches, dinners, coffees. My network is definitely smaller. I am lucky enough to go very niche into my relationships and really hone and grow that. But how does it work? Is there a secret sauce on how to develop 
culture in the Zoom environment with especially a lot of companies not going back to the offices? Is there a secret sauce? Yeah, I think time and care and empathy are, is the secret sauce. And, and I don't say that lightly. The questions that, that I would implore or invite people to consider are these three questions. Number one, what should we start doing? Uh, number two, what should we stop doing? And number three, what should we continue doing? You know, inevitably on March 14th or whatever it was, sometime in that week of the 14th to 19th, a lot of us were told you're no longer in the office, you're working from home. That change was substantial. Tell me about it. I, I canceled 24 flights that week uh, and postponed, I think, 13 different events. And the world kept spinning. We tried to bake in these new best practices or these new practices right away. And some of it worked really well and some of it didn't. But when we start to ask these questions around what should we start doing, what should we stop doing, and what should we should continue doing, that's when I think we can build something a little bit more intentional. So, you know, what should we start doing? Inevitably, you might have had a conversation with somebody in the past week or three that they shared something that, you know, that's really cool. Maybe we should try that too. Maybe that would serve us better. Um, what should we stop doing? Maybe there was something that you and your team started doing on March 20th that doesn't serve you anymore. Maybe it was just a sort of a knee-jerk reaction. Okay, we got to do it this way quick or else nobody's going to be able to communicate. And maybe that doesn't serve us anymore. And finally, what should we continue doing? You know, also there are going to be a lot of things that you've already done that work really well that I think you can continue doing too. And I think you already shared one of those shifts too. You moved maybe from Zoom to a phone call. You've made that one degree shift. You've reduced some of the friction. You've sort of got some of your energy and skipping your step back. And you're finding the, the practices that work better. Now, if each team can adopt this sort of framework and ask these questions every couple of weeks, maybe on a Monday morning from 8 to 8.15, what should we start, stop and continue doing? Then I think what happens is we start to build new habits and practice that ultimately work best for our team and, and can create a, a wonderful experience as a result. This is amazing. I, I will take that advice back. And every team meeting, this is going to be the three points we discuss because it doesn't have to be a long conversation. It doesn't it have to be long. And truthfully, simple. you know, there might not be anything that week yeah. that you should start doing or stop doing for that matter. But the fact that you gave people an opportunity to have their voice heard, I think is really important. And, and since we're looking at this millennial podcast, I think it's important too that we should debunk some of the, the millennial myths that, that we've heard. Now, again, I've studied a lot of people in this space, many of them millennials. And we've got this sort of myth about millennials want to climb the ladder faster than anyone else. They're entitled, they're narcissistic. You know, they live in their parents' basement. They watch Netflix and play Xbox all day. There needs to be a correction that, that has to occur. And maybe I'll ask you this first, but you know, what years were, were a millennial born? It seems like it keeps shifting every, every time, but I think right now it's 25 to about 35 or 36. Like that, that's what it yeah. seems like the latest one. So if you're 25 right. to 36, yeah. you, you are a millennial. I love that, that it, it keeps shifting. How can, and this is no slight to you, how can a generation change? And my point here is that the fact that we can't concretely define what a millennial is suggests that we don't really know or understand these people, whoever these people are, all that well. You know, I've looked at at Pew Research, I've looked at PwC, I've looked at the dictionary, I've looked at the US Census Bureau, I've looked at Goldman Sachs, I've looked at all of the definitions of millennial, and no two definition of a millennial are the same. And so going back to the, the point then, I think when we have an opportunity for people to have their voice heard, what we've realized in our research and our findings is that the root of happiness isn't necessarily having your ideas implemented, it's having your ideas heard. 
And in the world that we live in today, that's so tech dependent, what we found is that there's a point of sort of diminishing returns of technology. When we're on it too much, it actually takes away from our connection with others and doesn't add to it. And I think intuitively, we probably already knew that. But it's not about climbing the ladder so much as it is having your voice heard and learning from it. So if a senior individual asked my opinion and says, hey, what do you think we should start doing? And I have this, what I think to be this brilliant idea that we should start doing immediately. And she says to me, she says, Eric, you know what? I really appreciate that thought. And I think it could be really good down the road, but here's why it's not going to work right now. Then I'm feeling not only was I heard and understood, but I had the time of my senior leader where she took the time to look me in the eye and see what it was that I really cared about. And I learned from that experience too. Now, when I can have that perspective, the next idea that I bring to the table inevitably will be better because I've learned from the last one. But when we don't give people that time to be heard, to be understood, and to learn from the, perhaps the lack of experience that they have, or you know, just the excitement that they bring to the table, I think it's an opportunity lost to build a better team. I think it's an opportunity lost to learn. And I think it's an opportunity lost to build a sense of belonging and community across the team too. So you know, I'll, I'll summarize this, this piece by saying it's not about being right. I think it's about being heard. And when we give that opportunity for people to be heard and that starts up and continue conversation, it really builds camaraderie, trust, community, belonging, and has a learning opportunity every conversation as well. I agree with you. And it doesn't really matter whether you're a millennial or um, I read a few of your blogs and it basically says that, you know, maybe those qualities are not just prevalent to the 20 year olds, maybe they're prevalent to 40 or 50 year olds. So like, it just depends the time and age that we're living in now, the modern world. But do you think for millennials, this whole shift to online learning, online meetings, online networking is going to be more exciting? Are we ready to succeed in this culture? Are we more positioned? Are we better positioned than other generations to succeed? I think it's really hard to sort of label and generalize a generation. You know, I've learned tech tips from my grandfather and from my mom and from my dad. That's the honest truth. Sometimes I have a hard time turning on the TV and the cable box at the same time. Now, some millennials, if they say, you've got cable, are you crazy? To suggest that one generation is, is better set up. I mean, maybe if you were to speak more generally, yeah. But I mean, you could say that 90% of millennials like coffee too. And I'm, I'm one of the 10% that doesn't start their day with coffee. And so to suggest that a generation is better set for something, I think there's some truth in that. But I think the more we try and generalize a group of, you know, seven and a half or 10 million Canadians, a lot of people get left out. And as a result, I think it's more important to say, you know, if we're building this remote or tech first team, who is the individual that wants to be a part of that? not what is the age of the individual that wants to be a part of that. Because when we look at the future of work and we look at the future of the office, I think now we've, we've entered the greatest decentralization of normal that perhaps we'll ever see. You know, some, some offices will go back to, I'll, I'll put in air quotes, normal. Some will have this sort of hybrid model. Some will never go back. And as a result, I think it's a great opportunity for millennials and anyone of any age for that matter to find not just what they like to do, but how they like to do it too. And when we look at this decentralization of the workplace, I'm incredibly optimistic. I think happiness in the workplace was somewhere like 30% across the board. Maybe this is the reckoning that we needed to create better workplaces, to create happier people and experiences in these workplaces. And not just to create work that people want to do, but they get to do it how they want to do it too. 
And I think there's a silver lining that we haven't seen yet that'll be more and more apparent in the years to come. So do you think people are going to be now happier by working from home? And what do you think is the right way? And I mean, right, I'm saying it liberally because it's just an mm -hmm. opinion. But in it's your true. opinion, do you think it's better for people to work remotely all the time to go back to the office? Or mm -hmm. is it a combination of both? I think what's right for you is going to be different than what's right for me. When you look at pontificators about the future of work, we'll often hear the future of work is. And as soon as I hear the future of work is, I kind of tune out to whatever's next because there's no prescription. There's no treasure map. There's no dotted line with an X at the end of it. There's no destination when it comes to the future of work. And so to suggest that the future of work is fully remote discounts an incredible amount of blue collar workers, of assembly line workers, of service workers, of hospitality and restaurant workers. A lot of work hasn't changed all that much aside from uh, protective equipment and a plastic glass between you and the person that's working with, with you and the person that's serving you in, in some way, shape or form. So I think the future of work is, if I were to use that sort of framework, the future of work is whatever the company deems to be the best experience for the people that are working at it. Love it. Okay. So this one is taken from one of your blogs. How does the modern CEO ensures that people get to come to work, not feel like they have to work there? You know, in these times, I don't say these times because they don't happen like this very often. But what this time has sort of, I think, enabled, if we look at another silver lining, is, is the requirement to look at how we're attracting talent different. I did some research with Indeed, uh, the job posting website, and I asked them, I said, hey, if you were to aggregate the last 10,000 job descriptions, how many words would be on each job description? And the individual, the account executive said to me, probably between 250 and 300. And I'm thinking, what? How does anybody know what they're signing up for? A 250 to 300 word document. I think what we have to understand is that it's not just work that we're signing up for. It's a life that we're signing up for. I mean, look, I might find a job for, for Deloitte in Toronto because the job description looked great. And then moved to Toronto and realized I don't like living in Toronto. And that's not to say that Toronto's bad. That just might mean that Toronto's not a fit for me, even though the job description looked great. So what I think is going to happen now, if we want to have a group of people that are there because they want to be and not because they have to be, I think the job description will triple or quadruple in length. I think we're going to have employee interviews to understand not just what their life is like at work, but what their life is like outside of work too. I think we're going to involve, you know, triple bottom line volunteering opportunities. I think that will become more and more prevalent. And I think we're going to align people who are diverse, inclusive, and equitable so that it's not just what we do that we're aligned with, it's who we do it with that we're aligned with too. I think that's, that's one of the more important things that we haven't talked about all that much. I like it. I like it a lot. So then if you're a CEO of a company, you need to obviously get some talent into your doors. And I work with a lot of tech entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. so they can work remotely, right? And right now, all of them are expanding their markets and they need quality people. How do you hire that quality person, making sure that they're fantastic and can do the job and fit, considering you can't meet them in person, there's no this energy, you have to meet them through the screen. Any tips? Well, first of all, and I, I think this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, obviously the individual that you're looking to hire needs to have the skills and the requirements to do the job. I've heard this the idea of like, you know, I want to be able to be on a four hour plane ride with you or to be able to grab a beer with you or something like that and to like the person. And I think that's good too, but that doesn't substitute the importance for the need to do the job as well. But I think that 
if we look at a time like this, when you know people are furloughed, people are laid off, people are let go. I had a, a CEO that I was talking with yesterday and she put out a, an intern role and in 72 hours, 793 people applied. I thought that was astounding. And we're going to see that all over the place. It used to be when the unemployment rate was, you know, three or five percent or something like that. It was very much an employee's market and the employee could choose based on what the best offer is. It's not the case anymore. Unemployment rate, depending on which province, depending on which age group can be upwards of 25% right now. And literally hundreds, if not thousands of people will be applying for that job. And so I think the onus then is on the employer to put more rigorous screening in place to see if that's going to be a good fit. I think, again, the job description would triple or quadruple in length. I think there will be more skill testing questions. I think there will be more fit testing questions to see not only why people would want to work here, but at some point in the process, they realize this isn't for me. And I think it's better for both parties that they figure that out sooner rather than later. Because depending on who you talk to, a lower education, lower skill level, employee still costs $25,000 to hire and to train. And as you get more senior, as you get more educated, as you get more technical, that number can go up to, and I've spoken to groups who, who spend a quarter million dollars on training a single individual. You know, I was talking to an engineering about a year ago who spent about a quarter million dollars on training that individual because what we have to understand is that even if they are a fit, they're not going to be great at their job until a few months into it. Once they've learned the normalities of the company, of the industry, the way of doing things, they start to get more efficient and more productive. I think that we'll have more interviews with our coworkers or our potential coworkers as well. I think there'll just be a more rigorous process to understand, yes, you might be qualified to do the job, but are you aligned with the people that are working here to get that work done and to really be held accountable to each other and to enjoy that experience too? You touched upon a very important subject of, I guess, retention, making sure that people stay as long as they can. And millennials are known to be not loyal to one workplace Mm -hmm. and switch four jobs before the age of 32. Do you think this will just keep continuing now that we're digital and people can find jobs to work anywhere? Will that be even worse? Do you think people will find jobs where you can be loyal for longer? What's your opinion? There are a couple things there. Again, it's, it's really hard to generalize. You know, we've seen that contracting work, that gig and freelance work has, has gone up over the years. So, you know, perhaps less full-time positions are being taken. But also in the past six months, like I said, this transition from an employee's market to now an employer's market, I would be a lot more worried hopping from place to place to place to place, knowing that there are 900 other people that are fighting for that position. I actually think as a result of COVID, tenure will go up because it's not as safe as it used to be to hop from place to place with a $10,000 signing bonus here, there, or somewhere else. Now, will that last? Uh, I think it's hard to say. You know, I, I think that if companies do a better job at attracting the right people rather than just the skilled people, and again, I'm, I'm talking both, not just nice people. <laughs> I'm talking nice, skilled people. I actually think and would hope that it would increase again. I don't think it's healthy for individuals or for companies to have people hopping around six or eight months or every six or eight months. What about the market for freelancers? I mean, the places like Fiverr, Upwork, TaskRabbit, Top Talent, I think. There's Mm -hmm. a bunch of websites where you can hire people per hour to do all Mm -hmm. kinds of jobs from software development to your cleaning of your house to anything else. Do you think now this whole idea of entrepreneurship and everybody has to be a hustler and work on their own time is going to be a thing for a lot of people or 
No, not really. Something that concerns me for Canadians and, and the job market is, you know, if, if you're looking at a marketing task or something like that, or you're looking to program something and I could, you know, offshore it through a website like this for three dimes on the dollar for 30% of what I would hear, why wouldn't I do that? But I also think that there's security to take into consideration. There's the relationship and the creativity that needs to be taken into consideration. Sometimes time zones and the ability to be creative together need to be taken into consideration. Of course, there will be more opportunity for, for this freelancing and for this gig economy to, to take place. I think it just depends on the relationship that people want to build and how connected they want to be with their people when we move forward. To shift gears, if I am just finishing school and... I got an education. Let's say I'm a developer. What should be my path? Should I be trying to apply for the big companies like Google, Amazon? Should I try to do freelancing? Should I try a mix of both and just hustle? Should I try to get a day job? And what are the tips, I guess, to really excel at your either resume or your interview? Anything there? Like you said, there are so many different paths. And for me to suggest which one's best, I don't think that's a responsible thing for me, for me to do necessarily because I don't know the individual. Look, at the end of the day, we want experience. We want to put a roof over our head. We want to put food on our plate. If money is what we're looking for and we just need to get some experience, I would say the fastest way to probably do that is to put yourself on to a freelancer or an Upwork or something like that. If you're looking for that transactional work and you don't really care about a team and you want to work somewhere like you want to work in, in the mountains or something like that and you want to be fully remote, that's something I would take into consideration. If you're downtown in Vancouver or Calgary or Toronto, I would take that in consideration. Maybe you want to work in an office. Maybe you want to work with people. There are so many factors that are in play. What I would suggest is that if we're looking for that next job, whatever it might be, talk to people as much as you can. I don't mean network per se. I just mean understand. So I try and have a call a week with somebody that I can just understand their perspective and how they're thinking about the situation. Maybe somebody who's 10 years or 15 years or 20 years down the road where I think, you know, I, I kind of want to be there in 15 or 20 years, maybe, but I want to understand so what's their frame of thought, you know, what's their process and how they got to where they are. What are the pros and cons of their life right now? And I think that when we start to talk to people, if we're just coming out of school, who have freelanced for five years, I think you learn a lot from them. If they've worked as a developer for a tech company, oil and gas company for the last five years, I think it's important to know what their life is like too. I think what I'm trying to say here is that it's not just the work that's important. It's the life that we get to live as a result of the work that's equally important. And unless we get to understand the bigger picture, I'm not diminishing a developer or anyone. An accountant can be an accountant, can be an accountant. A developer can be a developer. A speaker can be a speaker, a speaker. But a speaker in Denver or Tampa Bay or Amsterdam might live a different life than I might here in, in Vancouver. And there's no better or worse, but a developer who's you know, working remote transactional jobs is going to live a different life than somebody who's what, a, a small scrappy tech startup or you know, let's just say a big bank. And to suggest that one's better or worse is irresponsible and doesn't take it into consideration what the individual values. But if we can explore what other people are doing and learn from them and the life that they live, I think we start to educate ourselves on what's a better fit. And when we do educate ourselves on what's a better fit, then when we're looking for that position, we're looking for that job, we're able to articulate more effectively why we want it, why we're a better fit, and what employer doesn't want to see that. I love it. I love how you're telling us that there's no right or wrong way to do things. Because when I 
I don't know, when I went to school, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it seemed like there's always a path. Like you get your co-op placement, you get an internship, you get in a company and you thrive and hustle and you climb the ladder. Mm -hmm. And then everything changed in the past five years with Instagram and influencers and bloggers and podcasts and people Mm -hmm. doing things on their own terms. And I think it's refreshing to hear someone saying, actually, there's no right or wrong way to do things. Yeah, I came to realize that the Canadian dream or the American dream is, is a bit of a myth. You know, it used to be a husband, a wife, a cat, a dog, you know, Johnny and Sally, a white picket fence, uh, an SUV in the parking lot in some sort of suburban area. The world's changed. And I don't think it's the American dream anymore or the Canadian dream anymore. I think, I think it's a Canadian's dream, like a Canadian apostrophe S, and that's possessive and it's unique. You know, your dream as a Canadian is going to be different than mine. That means there are 36 million individual Canadians' dreams that people are chasing. Success and the metrics of success that we had in the past are, are not what they are today. You know, I've got friends in small town Cranbrook, BC, 25,000 people who are teachers that, you know, the same people that I grew up with that get to take the summer off and go camping for four weeks at a time. And they're the happiest people I know. And I love them for it. You know, I've got people in, in downtown Vancouver that wear a suit and a tie and carry a briefcase to work and drive their Tesla to work and they park it in the underground garage of, you know, Bentall One. They take the elevator up to floor 37. They work from seven to seven. They've got three weeks off a year. They make a quarter million dollars a year. You know, they drive the fancy car. They've got the fancy, you know, apartment or, or house. They've got even a boat sometimes. And that's the life that they choose to live. And I kind of sit somewhere in the middle. I look at flexibility and freedom, and that's the thing that I want more than anything else. But suggest in today's day and age that one of those three people that I discussed is more successful than the other. It's kind of comparing apples to oranges, cats to dogs. And it just for me, it, it, it doesn't work anymore. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I love that, you know, there's no path to success and there's no right or wrong way to do things. Mm-hmm. I, I love this. Now, I guess, how did you get to where you are. We're going to shift gears a little bit to talk about <laughs> sure. Eric and how did you get to be the speaker, the podcaster, yeah, sure. the writer, and everything else in between. <laughs> the long and the short of it is that all of these issues that we talk about over the past 30 minutes are issues that I faced. And I was having a conversation with somebody last week and we're talking about finding or following your passion. And I think that is well-intended, terrible advice. And the reason why I say that, just because I don't want anyone to think I'm psychotic, is that Finding or following your passion, I think, is sort of like chasing a, a unicorn. You, you never quite get it. You know, you're always thinking that there's something better, something more. You're not quite there yet. You're chasing happiness without realizing that it can be everywhere around you. There is no perfect and there never will be. And I think that unless we sort of realize the happiness that's around us, we'll never actually find it. And that sounds sort of bleak. But at the same time, I think it sounds really hopeful. And I think it sounds really optimistic that Maybe wherever we are right now is exactly where we need to be. And if that's true, then maybe it's not the passion that we're chasing. It's the problem that we're chasing. That's what I'd, I'd probably like to say is don't, don't chase your passion. Chase the problem that you want to solve. And the problem that I wanted to solve with my co-founders who get all of the credit that I would share in this, in this conversation. So the problem that we saw is that millennials or anyone for that matter were applying to 70 or 80 jobs at a time coming out of school. We learned that recruiters are looking at these resumes for six and a half seconds each, that the chance of getting a job based on solely a resume was about 0.2%. What does a day in the life of an employee look like? So that companies could share that experience with the recruiting process. They could understand that, you know, if 
we're looking for, for a consultant between Deloitte, Accenture, PwC, EY, McKinsey, Bain, BCG, that you know these folks might be doing a very similar job, but the life that they get to live and how they do their job is very different. So we, we built a tool that quantified the employee experience. And we realized all of the things that I'm sharing with you today, that there is no best culture, that there is no formula or recipe for success, that what works for one person might not work for somebody else. And when we can share that unique experience, then I think we can attract better people, which ultimately led to you know, 30 or 40 keynotes for you know, different economic development groups or chambers of commerce, which then said, you know, I really like this speaking thing. I want to do more of it. And then I got, ended up getting signed by a speaking bureau I wanted to boost my credibility a little bit as a 23-year-old HR sort of future speaker. So I ended up writing a book to help me with that a little bit, which did fairly well. And here we are probably 350 keynotes or so in there, you know, this month, I think there are 13 or so with some incredible clients. And you know, I get to share some of my perspectives on the things that we're talking about today. It's been incremental. It's been constant and consistent. And it's just an experience that I'm really grateful for along the way. Thank you for sharing. So you went from university graduate to starting a startup to getting into this. That's basically the simplified, yeah, very simplified but I think path. It's important, I think it's important to share too that where I'm at right now for, for better or worse is not where I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be the Deloitte consultant. That was it. You know, uh, I wanted Deloitte from first or second year of university. I didn't get it. And the problem was a series of things. You know, I, I didn't get the interviews. I didn't uh, put the right effort, perhaps in school. I didn't have the right extracurricular activities. I didn't put the right words on my resume. I wasn't the right skill or the right fit, perhaps. And I think it was equally a part of a series of failures as it was a series of successes that, that got me to wherever this is. Because this didn't work, I learned more about myself and discovered this might. And so, you know, I never at 20 or whenever we were in school, I never thought, you know, I'm going to be a, a keynote speaker and an author in 10 years. To be honest, it never crossed my mind. I didn't really know about the opportunities of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship was a class in Haskane that, that I never took. I didn't really think much of it. And yet here we are. And so, I mean, the message I think that I would share is that success, as we discussed, is unique to the individual that experiences it. But I also believe very much that our goalposts can change along the way that we can redefine what success means for us through what we learn doesn't work just as equally as we can learn from what does work. So now you mentioned, you know, going to school and not taking entrepreneurship. If you could go back, would you <laughs> go to school again? Would you do school or not? Yeah, definitely. And I think that might actually be an unpopular opinion or response. But the reason why, not just for the education, truthfully, I've outsourced a lot of the things that I've learned. I don't do my own accounting or I don't do a lot of sort of the core business things that we were taught in school. But the life experience, the ability to work and collaborate and interact with people, the, the networking events, you know, I think university equally teaches you how to live life as it does do business maybe or acquire the skill that you need to do the job that you want to do i truly believe that through my residence experience or the club's experience or the student union experience or you know through team projects or marketing presentations i think that is insanely undervalued and should be taken into consideration equally as seriously as the actual education part of of the the schooling that i that i had anyways 
I love it. I love it. So now I guess the question would be, how do you balance things right now? You are a speaker and author. You have a lot of engagements. You said that during COVID, uh, there was a slowdown. Now everything's picking back up. Mm-hmm. How are you going to find balance when your schedule is going to fill up with things? I mean, in, in this industry, kind of when it, when it rains, it pours. You have to think of conferences kind of like the K-12 to school calendar. Nobody wants to host a conference when the mother or the father of a child is not in school. So you think like July and August are typically quiet months. You wouldn't host a conference in July and August. Long weekends, Easter, thanks Thanksgiving, think American Thanksgiving, think the Christmas holidays. We're in a very sweet spot of deep work. And then again, I would say sort of the third week of January until March break, uh, the two weeks that a lot of people will take off, especially in America, is, is a deep conference time. And then I would say April to sort of June, uh, April, May, June, the, I would say June 1st, and then things start to slow down again, are, are busy times. And so I've just started to learn that that much routine in, in my life, I've, have, in the past 10 years, I haven't really been able to join consistent leagues or sporting events. I've always been a sub and show up when I can. And that's some of the trade-offs that I've chosen to, to ultimately live this life. Some weeks are very long and other weeks are very short. And again, it works for me. I love the opportunity in the life this this career has given me. But at the same time, it's not for everyone. I think I was on 100 flights last year. And a lot of people would think like, wow, cool. And you're thinking based on the look on your face, oh, that sounds awful. And that's okay. It really works for me. And that's sort of where, where I've settled now. I love the routine. And uh, do you have any specific tips that you implement, like waking up every morning at 5 a.m. or you know, going to bed at 8 p.m.? I, I don't know. Yeah, you know what? I appreciate you asking that question because my least favorite articles on the planet uh, are the ones that sort of say, here are 10 things that Elon Musk does before 10 o'clock or you know, here's what Oprah has in her coffee or something like that. <laughs> and I don't like those because the article implies that I want to be like Elon Musk or Oprah or Richard Branson or whoever it might be. When the reality is, I don't want anything I don't want my life to resemble anything like Elon Musk's. I admire the guy. I admire Oprah to death. She's incredible. But I don't want that sort of pressure, that sort of weight, that sort of schedule that Elon has. Are you, are you kidding me? That is not what I'm looking for. And so, you know, I could tell you that usually my day starts with a run uh, somewhere between 5.45 and a.m. And, and 6.30. But if I'm not feeling it that day, then it won't happen. Then a shower and like a smoothie or some eggs and toast. And, you know, I could go through like a breakfast routine, but that only works for me. And, and I think that the sooner we realize and discover that what works for somebody else might not work for us, then I think we start to realize how we can achieve our own sense of happiness. And, and that's sort of where this one degree shift philosophy comes in too. How do we reduce friction over and over and over again? You might be a night owl. Uh, I don't stay up past 10 o'clock hard, hardly ever. And that's just what works for me. But I think that when we reduce friction and we make that small incremental change to carve out a path that works best for us, then that's when I think we'll see the most happiness because of it. I, I like this. Uh, Mark Manson usually says that, you know, we all deal with crap. You just have to choose the flavor of crap that you're dealing with. Like, <laughs> there there's no right way to do things. That's and right. that's basically what you're saying. You know what? Whatever works for you doesn't work for everyone else. And mm-hmm. I like to bring this idea for a lot of people who are on the podcast. They come and talk mm-hmm. about their routines. Some of them don't have one. And that mm-hmm. is okay. It doesn't define mm-hmm. success. Now, I guess for you, what's on the horizon what are the secret big project on your website can you give us like a little Um, teaser i signed up i signed up online i saw that thank you for that 
what's on the horizon is TBD. You know, I'm, I'm working really hard on this, this idea of a one degree shift. I'm, I'm writing a lot about it. And for better or worse, this podcast has either been very insightful or very not because the, the theme and the message throughout our entire conversation is find out what works for you and, and really go chase it. And some people are thinking, oh, thanks. You know, that's not the prescription I was looking for. And others are thinking like, maybe that's what I needed to hear. What's coming on the horizon is I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly shaping my craft. I'm trying to partner with as many people, not necessarily from a financial standpoint, but from an information standpoint. Like I'm endlessly and hopelessly curious about how other people see the world. And from learning from them, you know, I've got two calls today from great leaders who I want nothing more from than just to understand a little bit about how they think that I think I can sort of shape my future as a result. Um, so what's coming next? You know, you might see another book on the horizon. You might see different classes or programs. I'm working hard on, on reducing that friction myself and, and seeing what that sort of presents along the way. I like it. Can't wait for the other book. Now, I guess in order for you to stay up to date on trends, research, information, mm-hmm. and just keep up the mental agility, mm-hmm. what do you consume? the podcast, the books, the resources. A lot of the stuff that I'm sort of reading right now is on like psychology, like human psychology. Why do we make the decisions that we do? What's the root of vulnerability and courage? You know, how do we reprioritize what's most important to us? How do we sort of blaze our own trail? You know, if we look at sort of the Stoic series, if you look at uh, Ryan Holiday, I think that that's really interesting. The Courage to Be Disliked is a book that I read earlier this year that, that I really enjoyed as well. Different philosophies, I think, is, is really important. Just, again, equal parts to understand the world around us, but to understand ourselves better, too. The better I think we understand ourselves, the better I think we can find where we fit in the world. Because I think there are a lot of different things pulling us a lot of different ways with social media and different thought leaders and leaders uh, all across the world. Thinking, I want to be like him or I want to be like her. I think the more we understand about ourselves, the more we realize, I want to be like me further down the road, whatever that looks like, too. When it comes to podcasts, I'm not really a big podcast guy. I don't really listen to the podcast that much. I like to listen to people in in my network and just to have conversations with them where I'm not like wasting their time. So I think, how do you think? Um, I'm trying to come with pointed questions. What do you think about this specific event that I might have a really locked opinion on that could be controversial? And I'm looking to be proven wrong. And not necessarily proven wrong. I'm looking to understand why I'm wrong and how I might be better educated as a result. I guess from your experience and talking to a lot of other people, what do you think is the next opportunity coming up for this year, for 2021 and beyond? Like what's something that we should shift, focus on, keep our eyes open towards? The question that I would ask, and I think it's like a B question, meaning like it's a billion dollar solve. Like how do we scale human connection without scaling human capital needed to do it? And I don't mean like social media, another platform. I mean like how do you get new groups of people playing basketball together at an outdoor court without having someone facilitate it or organize it? Like, how do you create a new sports league without having anyone there that just gets like this massive drop-in um, opportunity where people can come and connect and they might pay 50 cents for the platform every time they go play a game with, you know, 15 other people? You know, that might be $7.50 times... 300 cities times 200 events a day. And all of a sudden you've got a pretty cool platform. And I think that, you know, how do you organize hiking or something like that? If you want to go out to, if you're visiting Calgary again and you want to do Yamnuska, you know, what's the app or the platform that you can say, hey, I'm going to leave at 6.30 tomorrow to go do Yamnuska. Who wants to come with me? And you can create this group of people who are connecting without 
having anyone sort of facilitate that connection, I think that scaled would be incredible and something that I think the world could really use. I like it. And it's based on hobbies and passions and everything we've been talking about where you find I mean, you could do finger painting if you wanted. You could do pottery if you wanted. It, it wouldn't matter. But there's going to be someone who likes the activity that you like that has never found you because they don't know where to look. I like it. Okay. So then I guess one more question about how do you build leadership in this digital era? Because I think the interesting part about you is if you can't go and attend an event in person, do you mm -hmm. still do the speaking engagements online virtually? And how mm -hmm. do you get the same energy through to people when they're on Zoom? You know, in a lot of your speaking engagements, you ask them to raise hands if they like black licorice mm -hmm. or cilantro. How do you do it over Zoom? Like, how do you project that energy? I mean, projecting the energy, it's not as hard as I think you think it might be. The fastest tip, I would say, if you want to convey and portray more energy on, on Zoom is to stand up. Um, and to get your body into it as well. I've got my studio here in Vancouver where, you know, I've got a couple of cameras set up. I've got, you know, a, a nice sort of setup behind me. I'm standing up and using my arms. I'm asking people in the chat box to participate. Um, I might call on a couple people every once in a while. I mean, the simplest way to do that, I think, is to when you're looking at the camera, pretend that you're looking at somebody that you care about, that you really want to understand the message that you have to convey. There are a lot of people in my network who totally subscribe to what I'm talking about. There are a lot of people in my network who, who don't necessarily subscribe to. And so I'm trying to look at that person in the eye, extremely empathetic with them, trying to understand from their perspective, share my message with as much heart and passion as possible to think at the end that maybe they'll think that this is right too. And when I can convert them, because I'm empathetic to their situation and give them as much energy and heart as possible, then, then perhaps it'll be successful. And how do you do that for multiple people at the same time? You just look at the camera and you envision just one person, even though there's a thousand people on the call? Pretty much, it. because you have to think that uh, that would be multiplied by a thousand people. But if I sort of vaguely talk to a thousand people out there, I'm really not talking to anyone. And so I'm trying to talk to that, that one person. Um, and that one person ultimately is the one person that's watching me at a time from a thousand different places uh, that can hopefully take that message in. And then when you're trying to get engagement from the audience on Zoom, is there some tips and tricks that you use that help you in this whole yeah, process? Yeah, so I use the chat box quite a bit. But what you'll find is that sometimes, depending on the platform, there's a 10 or a 15 second delay, which can be super awkward. What does everyone think about this? Crickets, crickets, crickets. So what I would do is I'll say, Kate, you know what? Everyone open your chat box and get your fingers ready because I got a question for you coming. And then I'll sort of talk through it a little bit. And then I'll ask the question, but people are already ready to answer. So you don't get that fumbling and you don't get that delay. And when they engage quickly, it keeps the momentum going. And it's so fun. Like it's so fun to see that chat box just fill up with 100 or 200 messages at a time. And the momentum is really contagious throughout the rest of the keynote too. So I try and engage quickly, briefly, like, you know, where's everyone calling in from today? And you just get like, you know, Tennessee, Nebraska, Alabama, Toronto, Calgary, and you get all these filled up. And that momentum sort of carries into the rest of the event where I can double down on that. Perfect. Thank you for this tip because I'm going to use it. I'm definitely awesome. going to borrow that. Question. If you could go back 10 years ago, maybe to a younger self, what would be your <laughs> advice? Fail faster. Try more, not harder necessarily. I think the road to success is paved with failures along the way. Ask more questions, connect with more people, exemplify and exude that curiosity more intentionally and more intensely would probably be my answer at any stage of life. Today, I'm just as guilty of thinking that I know more about the world than I do. We know what we know, obviously. 
Uh, we know what we don't know, but we don't know what we don't know. And I think the more we can learn about from the people in the world around us, the more we realize that we now know more about what we don't know. We can sort of shape our conversations and arguments because of that. I love it. Thank you. Okay. Well, fire round. Every person who comes on the show, they have to answer mm-hmm. the three questions. A millennial is, a millennial should be, a millennial is not. Are you ready? And I know mm-hmm. you don't like defining the generation. <laughs> I know well, that. Well, then this should be pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> a millennial is? Anything and anyone they want to be. A millennial should be? Anything and anyone they want to be. A millennial is not? A person born a certain year to a certain year. Love it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So for all the listeners... <laughs> And all the people who are going to be watching this, where do they find you? How do they connect with you and learn more? Uh, website, ericturmuddy.com, which I'm sure will be in the show notes or LinkedIn uh, if they want to connect there, uh, I think would be great. You know, look, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the show today. It was a great, great conversation. And I think, you know, I get to learn a little bit more about you and a little bit more about myself every time we, we have a chat like this. And so I just want to say thanks. No, thank you. You've been amazing. And I love having you here. I'm excited for your new project to come out and get all the updates. And everybody should pick up your book. And I guess the current book, Rethink Work. And then Mm -hmm. the next book that's coming out. Do you have the title yet? Not yet. I'm excited.